Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. I've been lucky enough to have a couple of internships with environmental organizations in Nairobi. It's when I worked with the Kenya Forest Working Group in 2002 that I learned about the dire status of forests in Kenya. Back then, Kenya's forest cover stood at a critical 1.7%. Latest estimates place Kenya's forest cover at a still critical 7.2 against the recommended 10% by the United Nations. So while improvements are being made, we talked to Dr. Dominique Walubengo about how there might be some discrepancies in how this forest cover is accounted for and what he is doing as director of the Forest Action Network to create government accountability and push for policy to increase forest cover. I consider Dr. Dominique Walubengo to be one of the OGs of the environmental movement in Kenya. He has an interesting life's journey into forestry where he started on the private side of logging and gradually found himself looking for solutions to sustainably manage natural and man-made forests. We also discuss what he believes is a solution to improving forest cover through community-based conservation. It was a very uplifting conversation hearing Dominique's strategy for change and how he has worked with national and local governments to encourage policy change for the benefit of forests in Kenya. So take a walk in the woods if you can while listening to this story. Tell us a little bit about what makes the forests in Kenya unique. Kenya has got several types of forests, and one of them is the continuation of the Congo forest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one in Kakamega. And that uh, makes it very important that we do look after our forests. The other forests are uh, highland forests, or what we call mountain forests. We also have coastal forests, and uh, we have uh, dryland forests. So those types of forests uh, serve different purposes. For example, the highland forests are uh, very good water catchment forests. And uh, the coastal forests, mostly mangroves, are good for breeding of fish and uh, other sea wildlife. And the dryland forests are good for the nomads or for the pastoralists because uh, they provide uh, fodder for their animals as well as shed and uh, water catchment in some cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so forests in Kenya are uh, important. Further, we know that something like uh, 70% of the people in Kenya use fuel wood for their cooking and heating. Mm. And that all comes from forests. And of course, we get uh, our timber from the forest for the construction industry. So forests are really uh, important in the country. Yes. Mm. So could you give us a little bit of an overview of the state of forests in Kenya? I think the state of forest in Kenya is bad. It could be better. And uh, one of the reasons that uh, the state of forest is not good is because we have not had a new forest policy since 1968. And I think in 1968, there were probably less than 10 million Kenyans. Now we're talking about 47 million Kenyans, which means they need land for agriculture, land for urban settlement, and land for commercial crops which means 
this land is being uh, taken away from the forests. Therefore, forests are in a, a crisis in this country because we don't have a proper policy and a proper direction on how to deal with this expanding population. Right. And most of northern Kenya is arid and semi-arid. Yes, yes. And so most of our forests are from central down to to southern parts of Kenya. If you talk about what we call close canopy forests, Mm -hmm. the forests with the high trees, and if you walk under them, you'll not uh, see the sun much. Yes. But uh, the dryland forests are also important. Mm-hmm. They may be, they may have scattered trees, but uh, they are very important in that. Uh, that's where we get most of our charcoal, for example. Right. Yes, and that's where we also get uh, the gum arabic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And what are some of those policies that you think would be helpful to improve our forests' health? Yeah. For example, in this country, the dryland forests were not recognized as forests, and so they were not looked after. In the north. Places like uh, Masabit, Trukana, Garissa, Mandera, they were not recognized. Therefore, nobody paid attention to them. They were not managed, and uh, so they could not improve. Then we have got the natural forests in uh, mountain areas like Kakamega, Mount Kenya, Mount Elgon, and the Mao. Again, these forests are looked up at by communities living close by as possible settlement areas. So. This is not good. I think that uh, this forest should be managed properly. And uh, I should also say that uh, in Kenya, when we talk about forest management, we are only talking about uh, plantation forests, which are uh, about 120 hectares in area. And we're not talking about the about 2 million acres of natural forests. These are left unmanaged. I think that with a good policy, we could manage them and uh, harvest them for timber and use them for water catchment harvest them for indigenous fruits, and uh, have them as habitat for wildlife. Yeah. I, I really like listening to you talking about forests. Um, <laughs> I can hear the passion in your voice, and I really appreciate what you're doing for our forests, protecting it, and helping manage it, because we're, we really need that type of help right now. And it makes me wonder, what do you love about trees? Well, Perhaps it comes from the fact that uh, I was born very close to a forest in, uh, in Iktale, Transoya County. We had a river by, a river nearby, and a wetland, and there were all sorts of birds and fruits. And uh, I think uh, during school holidays, I probably went to that forest every day. So uh, I really like the forest landscape and the climate in the forested areas. But we also had a lot of uses for forest products. There was honey coming out of the forest, water, of course. Uh, We had reeds and we had building materials. And uh, when I was in my first formal job, I built a a, a timber house and it's still there up to now. Wow. So uh, I really value forests. Yeah, Yeah. because your livelihood was based on the proper management of that resource. Yes, 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 yeah. That's... And my first job, my, 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 let's say my second job, yeah, I worked in the forest sector. Mm-hmm. And I could see that uh, the environment or forest can really produce many jobs if we look after them properly. Right. Yeah. And we were talking about that earlier too. Could you tell us about how you see an opportunity for us to create more jobs through reforestation? Yes. We have probably got something like 50,000 hectares of 
urban forest land, which needs to be replanted. And uh, if you look at the number of seedlings that would need 50,000 hectares plus uh, times less than 1,000 seedlings, that's uh, 50 million seedlings would be needed. And uh, the people who produce seedlings at nurseries could benefit from that sort of uh, input. In addition, we could plant uh, trees along our highways. And if we just did 10 rows on either side of the highway, that could be a lot, a lot of seedlings indeed. And again, managing that sort of highway, forest on the highway would also create jobs. And then uh, while harvesting or during harvesting, this could also create jobs. There are people would be experts in harvesting. And then, of course, the timber could be used uh, by carpenters, by the forest industry. So that would be one way of creating jobs. And uh, let me add that uh, towns like Joro, Molo, Elbagon, who are what we call forest towns, or sawmill towns. Now, because of lack of management of forests, these towns have died, more or less. There are no jobs in those towns because they cannot get trees to run their sawmills. So th this is a problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You have your doctorate in forestry yes. management. Yes. Tell us about how you began that journey of choosing a career in forestry management and how your career has grown through that time. Well, like I said earlier on, we lived near a forest. But when I went to study, I did not study forestry. Mm -hmm. I went and studied engineering first. Mm -hmm. And uh, as an engineer, I worked in a, a sugar company. And from a sugar company, I went to work for a forest company. And that's when now I started studying forestry and uh, discovered my, well, it was a pleasant surprise that in fact the first forester or the first uh, scientific forester was not a biologist. He was actually a mining engineer. And forestry was more about mathematics. He was looking at how to produce enough timber to build ships for his kingdom and had produced enough wood to produce heat, to melt uh, iron, to, to build uh, weapons and uh, ships. So it was a mathematical matter. So that, that's why you find that planted forests are planted in a certain pattern and volumes are measured because it's a question of measuring growth rates. So while at the timber industry and working uh, milling and uh, also logging, we started looking at uh, sustainable forestry. How do we sustain our timber industry if we cut away everything? Mm -hmm. How do we ensure that we plant enough so that uh, every year we can take out, uh, let's say, 100 hectares and still continue for the next 30 years and more? That's why I now started reading forestry. And then after the timber industry, I joined uh, an organization an NGO which was working in wood energy called the Kenya Environment and the Kenya Environment and uh, Organization. And uh, I worked for them for 12 years and there I got exposed to more forestry work, planting trees and uh, agroforestry. After that, I came to work for the Forest Action Network, initially as a coordinator and then became the chief executive a few years later. And then I started uh, looking at the reasons why people in Kenya, especially communities who live near forests, are not interested in uh, participating in forest management. 
So I then went to study their case at Mandelgon using my, using my career university as my basis because I knew many professors at my career university in Uganda. And Mandelgon is both in Uganda and in Kenya. Mm-hmm. And uh, we looked at uh, what we then call collaborative forest management with the support of the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. And the collaborative forest management then, then graduated into community forest management. So after that, I then uh, studied participatory forest management. I wanted to know why people are not participating. And uh, my thesis was then used to produce the Forests Act of Kenya 2005. So I was very happy that that happened. Yes, it was a milestone for... For the country as well as for myself. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And you contributed significantly to it. Yes, yes, absolutely. How did you go about bringing this policy to life? What were some of the challenges that you had to face and what were some of the strategies that you used? The, the, the biggest challenge was uh, there was very little trust between the forest uh, service officers and the communities who live near forests. And the communities who live near forests considered the forest service as a police organization and as an anti-people organization. So first we had to build that trust. We had many, many community meetings together with the foresters to explain the importance of forests to both communities as well as to the government officials. And we then agreed that communities should have a legal way of using forests. Instead of running the forest and getting a few pieces of wood when the forest is not looking, we agreed that there should be an official way in which these communities can actually access forests. So we set up what we call community forest associations in the law. And uh, once community forest associations were registered legally, they were allowed to participate in uh, managing the government forests. And while managing the government forests, they were also allowed to carry away dead wood, to carry away grass for their animals, and pick mushrooms, to pick vegetables, and to pick some soils which they could use for construction of their houses. So that way, communities became friends of the foresters, and the forest service started spending less money on policing forests. So I think that was a a good contribution. Right. So it's a collaborative approach where we're helping get people out of poverty Yes. by allowing them access to the natural resources, but we're doing it in a manner that it does well for the human beings or the the communities as well as the the forest. Yes, and uh, we've been good communities trained to become uh, forest scouts so they can work with forest rangers to prevent uh, illegal logging and also to prevent illegal animal poaching mm-hmm. because many animals, wildlife, also live in forests. So we, we train these uh, communities to help. That is the, the ideal model for community-based conservation yes, is you're yes. empowering the people as well yes. to take care of the resource and we just don't have enough of those type of models, mm-hmm. which I think it's, and it's great that it's working as a result of the, the 2005 law. Yes. And uh, we then uh, have a new law, of course, 2016. Mm-hmm. And it's again based on the 2005 law. It, it's working closely with the communities. I should also say that in 2011, 
I then participated in uh, preparing the wildlife law, the Wildlife Management and, and Conservation Act, mm-hmm. and we copied a bit from the forest side to have community wildlife associations and uh, to ensure that the people who live near wildlife parks benefit from uh, participating in the management of those parks. And how do they participate in the management of those parks? Because one of the biggest problems that we face in in Kenya is we have a lot of human-wildlife conflict, and there's this animosity between, you know, humans and the wildlife. How do we balance those? The the way they participate is that uh, people who have got land near the parks allow their land to be used as as, uh, dispersal areas. So wildlife can come into their land and then go back to the park. Mm. And uh, that means these people will not now cultivate. You, they cannot cultivate wheat or maize if they are living near a wildlife area. So these people then convert their land into wildlife conservancies. So that way, when tourists come into the main national park, an arrangement is made for these tourists to either go into the conservancy areas or to contribute some money to the conservancy areas. So that way the people who live near the parks also benefit. And uh, these people then protect the wildlife because they know they'll benefit. Some uh, hotel uh, industries have built, uh, they've constructed their hotels or their camps in the dispersal areas. And they pay rent Mm -hmm. and they employ the local communities. So many communities then see this as a benefit. Mm -hmm. So going back to the forestry management, aspect here. When I was an intern back in 2002 with the Kenya Forestry Working Group, I was doing research on the state of forests in Kenya. And at that time in 2002, I had learned that based on the estimates indicated that global forests were 21.43%. And in the average in Africa was 9.25%. And in Kenya, it was at 1.7%. Yes, yes. And this percentage has increased um, over the years to about 4%, I believe. So what are some of the things that have been most effective in increasing that percentage? And what more can we do? Yes, uh, there are various uh, reasons why the percentage uh, increased positively. One is that uh, the communities participating in managing the forests have ensured that uh, there's minimal destruction of the forests. The other is the government has now recognized the private forest farmers who have planted many hectares of trees on the on the land. Mm-hmm. Those are now considered forests. The third one is that the dryland forests have been classified as forests as well. So there are uh, three reasons why we now see an improved percentage. And uh, the two are actually that there's been uh, improved planting, improved uh, tree cover. Then the uh, the idea of uh, considering drylands as forests has come in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we have to reach at least 7%, right? According to our constitution, we should go to about 10%, at least maybe 10%. And I, I think we can do it using farmers and improving the areas which are degraded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The forest land in the indigenous forest, there's a lot of degraded forest land. And if we planted that, we could easily 
travel or take the forest cover towards 10%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I understand that the Kenyan government only, I guess, has gazetted mm-hmm. 4% yes. of the forest cover. So a lot of it depends on working with the private sector to increase that forest yes. cover. Yes, yeah, private sector and the county governments. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the what we used to call trust land many years ago is now land, it's now considered, it's now defined as community land. And this community land has got community forests in the drylands. So again, working with communities in the drylands, we can maintain a good forest cover. Right. What are some of the misconceptions that you've come across when you're working with community groups as far as forest conservation and management goes? Well, some of them say that forests were planted by God and therefore we don't have to do anything about it. We just wait for God to plant them once more. But others think that forests are interfering with their pastures, therefore they should uh, remove them so that they can uh, have uh, livestock feeding. While others consider forests as dangerous because enemies can come and hide in there and uh, steal their cattle. So some of these people will not then uh, want to make forests. In uh, settled areas, that's non-pastoralist areas, I've come across many people who say they don't want the forest planted near them because the forest will attract monkeys and the monkeys will eat their crops. So there's that. In my own case, it took me almost 10 years to convince my neighbors that I should plant the forest on my land. And they kept on saying, but monkeys are going to damage our crops. And then uh, at one meeting, I told them, but monkeys are always close to human beings. They always live near us. And everybody laughed, and then they said, okay, you can plant your trees. <laughs> but I've not seen any monkeys there yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. The other thing that we struggle with is there's a divide between environment and human health. Yes. And economy, as far as forests are, are concerned. What do you think has caused that separation of ideas? Because we are a community that historically has our ancestors relied on nature for our survival and a lot of our forests are actually some of our forests are sacred forests yes so what has caused that divide or the separation in idea of forest versus man i think that uh, urbanization has caused a lot of uh, change people who live in towns were born in towns may not appreciate that others depend on forests that much or that we depend on nature that much. Because in the town, water is piped to them and electricity is brought in, there are roads, and the people do not feel that close to nature. They don't feel that if the forest is gone, there'll be no water because they don't even have a good idea of where where the water is piped in from. So you'll find that uh, many people in urban areas do not value the environment that much because they don't interact with it directly. If I, may, if I talk about rivers, forests, lakes, and wildlife, they don't interact with them directly. So they look at it as, as something interesting, but distant. And then the people in the urban areas control the education system. So they have uh, crafted a, a curriculum which does not put a lot of emphasis on nature, on nature study or environmental studies. They put more emphasis uh, on uh, things which will attract the urban children. 
And, and this is a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. And the other challenge that we face is that people don't equate the the forest as being directly linked to their own well-being. They don't see that necessarily. Yes, yes. Yeah. And unless you live near a forest, you may not realize a person who, who lives in the, in the city center and does not see trees often and only sees them on TV may not realize the importance. And uh, this, this sort of person may not realize that if the forest were to be completely decimated, then there would be no water in the urban area. Mm-hmm. Many people in the urban areas associate water with rain, not necessarily with, with forests, not with the catchment. They just say, okay, it has rained, where's the water? They, they imagine that the water companies just catch the, the rainwater in dams and then pipe it. Mm. They don't realize that this water actually falls in a wide area covered by forests and then it seeps into the dam and then it's piped into towns. So that disconnect is a major, major uh, problem. Uh, last year, I visited uh, uh, Bavaria in Germany and the, the forest owners were complaining that the urban people sometimes prevent them from logging, even legal logging, because the urban people look at forests as something that uh, is interesting to visit. Mm-hmm. And uh, even if it's a planted forest and it's logged, then the urban people are not happy. They don't understand the dynamics. So this, this is a big problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just hope that the urban people get more educated regarding nature and forests. And what can the, the network do to get urban people out of these urbanized areas and into the forests and getting to appreciate them? I think uh, some of our colleagues have been organizing uh, trips for children, especially to the national parks, to forests, uh, from urban areas to those areas. So when these children grow, it's hoped that they will uh, be very keen on uh, natural resources and on forests in particular. I've seen uh, colleagues at uh, the Wildlife Clubs of Kenya doing a good job. The scouts doing a good job in that uh, direction. Mm -hmm. That's good. There is another element of working with the private sector because, as I said earlier, a very small percentage of the forests is under government control. Yes, Yes. And now we have to somehow collaborate with the private companies or private landowners How do you suggest we do that? Yes, that has been one of our suggestions. It's actually in the law that the private sector can lease government land and plant forests and uh, have an agreement, whether it's for 30 years or 60 years, to have two rotations of crops. But the government officials have spoken to about this, are worried that uh, if they let this happen, then... At one stage, the private sector might end up owning that uh, government forest. And that's because perhaps they feel that the law is not strong enough. The other reason I've seen, talking to the private sector themselves, they're so used to getting cheap material from uh, government forests that they do not really want to invest in uh, planting and managing a forest and immaturity. So these are the problems we're having. However, In a recent discussion with the Minister of Environment and Forestry, we are suggesting that uh, the private sector industry, the forest industry, can lease land from um, private landowners and then plant uh, trees. Because private landowners are not going to let their land go. They know how to to ensure that the land stays 
right. in their hands. It's their yeah. assets. Their... Yes. And there, there, there are many private landowners who have got uh, some big tracts of land which they could actually uh, lease out. And so it's just a matter of convincing them that there is an economic value yes, in yes, doing that. Yes. And in fact, we want to have a, want to organize a meeting between the government, that is the Minister of Environment and Natural and uh, Forestry, and the, the forest industries, as well as private landowners. Mm-hmm. And then we have this discussion. Yes. I think I'd be curious to know what comes out of those yeah, meetings yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so moving forward, what is your vision of forests in Kenya? You talked a little bit about it earlier, where you see that the community-based management is is working it's helpful mm-hmm. it's collaborating with private landowners what else do you see as being a moment of yes we have arrived yes and we have healthy forests i would like a situation where the communities are given more management powers over forests not only to manage but to rehabilitate the forests and to then benefit from those forests for example, the communities could uh, grow, let's say, plant 10,000 hectares of forests, and it will be agreed that uh, half the trees, 50% of the trees will go to the communities and 50% to the forest service. I could also see a situation where communities plant uh, indigenous fruit trees in those uh, natural forests and harvest the fruits, and uh, that way see a direct uh, benefit. I'm also hoping that the private sector will lease government land and uh, plant trees, especially government land, which is at the moment empty, not with any trees on it, and then also lease uh, private sector land so that they can uh, grow trees. So I can see a very positive future for forestry in Kenya. It could be a major, major source of employment only if we just uh, tweak the policy a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yes. The other challenge I I see us having to overcome is our election cycles. Every five years, we have to elect a new person or the same person. But we're just like in any other country and any other democratic country, we struggle with having to educate, re-educate whoever comes into office and making them commit to something that would be for five years. Do you see that kind of challenge when it comes to convincing our leaders about forestry management and protection? Yeah, indeed. This morning I was discussing with a friend in uh, an earlier meeting and uh, we agreed that uh, one of the problems we face in forestry is that it, uh, it does not produce votes in that uh, the politicians do not see any votes in uh, forestry. They only see votes in uh, destroying the forest. That is in settling their voters. But they don't see planting of trees as a vote-winning strategy. Indeed, a number of years ago, I talked to a governor, and we talked about uh, planting bamboo and other species in his county, and uh, the county paying for it. And the question he asked us that, will these trees or bamboos be visible after five years? Because if they're not visible, then they'll not get him votes. And this is a major uh, problem. I think that permanent officials in government should take over these sort of uh, initiatives so that they look after forests and uh, promote forestry. Because if we leave it to politicians, the politicians only look at five-year plans. And in fact, 
it's less than five years because as soon as they get elected, then they begin wondering whether they'll be re-elected. Mm -hmm. So they begin uh, focusing on being re-elected and not on forestry. This is also the case even with the elected officials who have been put in charge of forestry in the past. They've They've looked at how they can use it to get elected. And one way of getting obviously the forest to get elected is to declare it an unforest and, and subdivide it among voters. And that is decreting the forest. So that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is a challenge, getting them to see that there's a long-term vision. Absolutely. And that it takes years for trees to grow mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and to be nurtured along along the way. It's yes, not, yes. like you said, you can't just put a seedling in the ground and then expect that it will grow into a mature tree on its own. Yes, and you must manage it. Exactly. So as we're reaching the the end of our conversation here, I have a question of we're in the environmental field. There are not very many of us Mm -hmm. and not many people will willingly choose a path in the environmental protection, conservation management. Yes. What can we do to encourage more people to choose this career path? Yes, I think we, in Kenya especially, we have got, I don't know whether they call it a problem or a situation where many people look at a career as a way of earning some money mm-hmm. and as a way of livelihood. Mm-hmm. Or they, so they'll take up a course uh, at college or at university with the aim of getting a job to earn uh, That's how we've been trained. So these people look around and see that uh, the Forest Service perhaps has not hired uh, foresters for the past 10 years. The Environment uh, Organization, the main one, which is uh, the National Environment Management uh, Authority, may not have hired new staff for the past five years. And they worry, if you go into that uh, study, what then? How will you then get a, a job? So... My advice would be that uh, people who are committed take up the studies and then start small and do something with their knowledge. I've known uh, young people who studied agriculture. After studying agriculture and understanding uh, the subject and getting knowledge, then they ask their parents for a small piece of land and they begin planting potatoes and uh, cabbages, tomatoes, according to how they were taught in school. And they have employed themselves in that way. But you see now that limits it to the people whose parents have got some land. Yeah. Or who have got uh, access to land. So we do have a crisis. uh, And I've come across many young people who have studied environment and they are really unhappy that they have not been able to to get jobs. Having said that, I think that uh, if the government took uh, management of natural resources seriously, forestry, there would be many jobs in this sector. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully you can pass another policy for us. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that also looks at uh, increasing employment. Absolutely, for, yeah. Uh, I, think, I think that that's my, that, that's my next stop because now I've got young people in my house who are not fully employed. <laughs> uh, I, I do understand what it means when young people don't have jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could say in, in my time, I was really fortunate in that uh, throughout school, and through university, I never liked a job. Every time we were on a school holiday or university holiday, there were jobs all over the place, mm-hmm. yeah, which is not the case anymore. Yes. But those jobs are just latent. They are there. They are just asleep. We must wake them up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I, I really hope that you can help us do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. For sure. Because yeah, there's yeah. a lot of passion in the youth and yes, for the yes. environment. Yeah. And they need to just have a, a channel where they can put their passion to work. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Yeah. So we'll go to the, the last section of our interview. And I, I call this the lightning round, mm-hmm. where I ask you one question and then you answer the first thing that comes to your mind. <laughs> So my first question here is, if I really knew you, what would I know about you? Mm. You'd, you'd know about me as a forest uh, owner, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And what is it that you have read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? I read a, a book called The, the Other Wife <laughs> in my life. <laughs> what was that about? <laughs> It was about a man who had a, a girlfriend who was about to marry, but he had not completely left his first wife. And so he, he more or less had two wives. Yeah. And what was it about that uh, that stuck with you? Uh, it's the, what stuck with me was the, the human uh, feelings and the human uh, nature and the, the importance of putting people's feelings into account. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's important, especially for environmentalists. Yes, we, yes, we tend yeah. to put the environment first yeah. and not yes, think that yes. the people. Yeah. In fact, I'm a member of an environmental group and we have been having those arguments. People can be very passionate about wildlife and very passionate about trees and forget that there are citizens who are starving. Mm-hmm. So we must put that in account. Yes. And I think that is really the, the key formula yes. for protecting our environment. Yeah. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? I think it's uh, discipline, waking up early and focusing on uh, my work. Mm-hmm. Do you wake up at 5 a.m. or 4 a.m.? No, 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 not that early, not that early, <laughs> up six. <laughs> but generally, have a habit of waking up at, uh, let's say, 6.30 and then organizing my day, writing down notes on what I will do mm-hmm. and then uh, trying to to do it. Yeah. Mostly they're over ambitious, but uh, I you have to start it. somewhere. Yes. yes. <laughs> what is it that inspires you every day? It's the hope that uh, I can actually change something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also read a book a long time ago, I think I was in form two, called uh, You Can Change the World uh, by a gentleman called uh, James Keller. Mm-hmm. He was a priest. And uh, then I had an, a big argument with my friends uh, who said, no, 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 you cannot change the world. And then our teacher came and uh, asked me to paint something on the wall. And I did. And then he said, he asked the other friends, have you changed the wall? Has he changed the world? They said, yes. So he said, you see, you can change the world. Okay. Yeah, that's my <laughs> belief. That in your own small way, mm-hmm. you can actually change the world. And uh, I feel happy that... Uh, I've uh, changed the forest sector in Kenya and the wildlife sector. Yes. Yeah. And for that, we thank you. And you still have big plans. Yes, yes. And I still think we can do more. Yes. Thank you. So if we wanted to follow you on your journey to protecting the forests of Kenya, where can we find you? I'm on Twitter every day. Yeah, I've seen them. (laughs) (laughs) Nice tweets. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, What's your Twitter handle? At uh, Walwande. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. I'll include that in our notes yeah, as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to add before we end this session? Yes. I, I'm actually uh, worried that uh, our youth in this country are not occupied enough. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a, a very worrying uh, thing that uh, a person wakes up in the morning and with good luck, the parents have provided some breakfast, some lunch. They take a, a walk around the village or the town and then come back. Having done nothing that uh, can improve their lives or uh, improve their their feeling of being human. Yeah, I, I really feel bad about that. Yeah. So I think that it would be good for the youth to wake up looking towards something. Mm-hmm. Uh, that today I'll do this. Uh, today I'll, I'll plant flowers. Today I'll, I'll make a, a table or a stool. Today I'll uh, clean water. Or today I'm going to, to do a water channel that will, will help against uh, floods. Something. It's really bad that these young people are just uh, walking about and uh, looking in the sky and panicking, wondering what next. I wish that we could do something about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I've been uh, encouraging young people to, if they've got access to a small piece of land, to keep chicken, to plant uh, a few fruit trees, to be busy, to plant some uh, quick-growing crops like uh, chili. Mm-hmm and uh, potatoes, cabbages, to actually be busy. I started a nursery in Njoro, and it's employing two young people. And uh, I've allowed them to use part of the nursery to grow their own vegetables, and they're selling as well. I sell the seedlings, and they sell the vegetables also. And it's less than uh, half an acre. Yeah. And there are many, many half acres in this country. Right. We have a lot of rich uh, land. Which could be used, yeah. 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 So that, that's my major feeling whenever I see these young people without uh, adequate uh, activity to keep them busy. I, I really panic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone needs a sense of purpose. Absolutely. And uh, to feel useful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I once traveled in, uh, in the city of Rome and I had a very good friend working at FAO. And she told me that uh, the good thing about Rome is that people can feel useful. They can become tour guides, for example. They can read the history of the town and then go and stand at a bus stage and wait for tourists to come in. And they take out a book and say, let me take you through the city and show the museums. And then they'll be paid some money. So she told me it's very important for people to feel wanted mm-hmm. and to feel useful. And this is what we're not having here. We're having a situation where people don't feel used, useful and they don't feel wanted. Yeah, and this is a major, major uh, letdown. Yes, it's all that great knowledge that's going to loss. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Young people have gone through university, they've gone through college, then they come and sit and they just uh, stare at the sky. That's, that's not good. Yeah. Well, I hope that forestry is is a solution or is a part of that solution yes, yes, for yes, our country. Yes, and yes. I really do believe yeah. that it could be. Yeah. So... Yeah, I, I want to convince the government the way we did many years ago that uh, we plant trees along the highway and uh, we shall then uh, perhaps talk to the owners of the land near the roads to also increase the number of trees in their land and uh, we can get young people to participate in planting these trees and managing them and uh, they can be kept very busy. I visited uh, Nepal many years ago and uh, I found a very interesting concept where NGOs, non-government organizations, were maintaining roads, government roads. So every small section of the road was allocated to an NGO, 
and they used villagers to make sure that there, were, there was no grass growing on the road, there was uh, proper drainage on the roads, and they were paid. It wasn't a lot of money, but the roads were well looked after, yeah. and uh, the villagers looked at the road as their, as their own, and they did not want it to be in any way stabbed, and they were happy. The government was happy, the people were happy. So there, there are many ways, I think, of uh, engaging the youth, and I believe that there's enough money in this country to do that. I completely agree with you. Well, thank you again, Dr. Walubengo. You've been extremely kind with your time and you have provided us with so much insight that I don't think I could have gotten that if I just Googled it, yeah. <laughs> which I did. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, not enough. You don't get enough by Googling. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. A lot of yeah. that knowledge is within people like you. So thank you very much for your time and we'll see you around. Thank you. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.